Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. You're very welcome to a new Redefining Cybersecurity podcast episode here on ITSP Magazine. And uh, as you know, I help, or I try to help anyway, uh, organizations understand the role of technology and, and people and, and processes in building out security programs uh, in a way that fits operationally with the business. Uh, so enabling the business and protecting it as, as it grows, um, not getting too too deep into the weeds and, and missing the real point of why we even bother in the first place. And uh, this topic was presented to me and, and given my background in quality assurance engineering, um, I was super excited to talk about this in the context of security testing. So we're going to be looking at uh, the different methodologies for uh, security testing applications and systems. And uh, I'll just include the range of, of black to gray to white here. And uh, we'll, we'll understand a little bit more <laughs> what those mean. I don't know if there are other, other terms or shades that we can talk about as well. We'll figure that out. Um, so thanks everybody for tuning into this. I'm thrilled to have Mario and Andrew on. Uh, they both have a different perspective to uh, this particular topic and seeing it through to a program or project through to completion. Um, and uh Hopefully some tips and some stories to help us all kind of visualize a way to tackle this problem. So without further ado, uh, a few words from each of you on uh, who you are and what you do and and why this is an important topic to you. Mario, we'll start with you. Cool. Thank you very much and very happy to be here. Uh, my name is Mario. I'm the founder and uh, director of a uh, team of penetration testers, a small penetration testing firm from Berlin and Germany. And we're called Q53. And uh, yeah, we do pen tests, source code audits, and those kinds of things. And I'm usually the person whom you talk to for like everything contractual, quality assurance, uh, report handover, and those kinds of things. Love it. And Andrew. Hi, uh, it's great to be here. Um, my name is Andrew Woodhouse. I'm the CIO of Real VNC. Uh, so we do remote access software. And neither of you answered why it is an important topic. <laughs> why, 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 uh, why did you want to? Well, first have the do the program, the project, and then why is it important to you to share with others? So, I'll take from 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 my perspective. So, the the audit that I think we're going to be talking about today is part of um, a wider security initiative that I put in place for Real VNC. Um, and that comprised a number of things that I'm sure are going to be familiar to your listeners. One of them was software composition analysis. So we brought a tool in to look at our software, understand 
where we were using libraries that may be out of date, may be old, may have vulnerabilities in and help the developers fix those issues. And also um, highlight any libraries that had, for example, license risks. So they might be GPL licensed, maybe that introduces risks into our commercial software that we have to be aware of. Um, another program was an ISO 27001 program. So aiming to be ISO 27001 certified which um, is a very large project and at some point we can maybe talk about why we're doing that and why we think that's important and another one was basically bringing cure 53 into audit our code um, and not just from a marketing point of view to say hey look we've done this it aren't we great but actually help us improve our software and our software development process as well both both important parts though i mean raising the posture but but also, I mean, it's smart to, to demonstrate and, and use it to help companies or customers make a good, good informed decision on which, which companies actually care, right? It's not just a checkbox of SOC 2, for example. Um, Mario, anything to add there? No, I, I would agree with those. Um, and I would uh, see what we do with penetration testing and source code auditing as just like one of many small components that can help to make a company or a product more secure. Um, so it's not done yet once we're done. There's like lots of more stuff to do. Um, but yeah, we're like part of that uh, construct, part of that uh, plan that helps you to make your software more secure, hopefully, I guess. Absolutely. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig back into uh, the recesses of my mind when I was a, a QA engineer and I was responsible for many things uh, in validating the quality of, of the software that I was building at the time, big, big yellow company, uh, delivering tons of uh, software products to the market. If you can picture that, uh, who that is. Um, and so the, the black box testing that I did there was usually scenario driven, user story driven. We kind of understood the, the workflow and the business process and the, and the business logic that, that the app was supposed to, work by or work around or under, I should say. And we would test it externally, trying to get it to do that to ensure that it did, and then try to get it to not do what it was supposed to do uh, to find those anomalies. And then I was also responsible for coding tests to uh, test a function calls and API calls and, and networking calls and, and data manipulation uh, calls and, and validating data and things like that. And that was the, that was the, uh, the white box test. So black and white is the, is it the same idea in security testing? Does that translate? Well, I don't know, Mario, can you maybe kind of share with us your view of white box, black box? Are there, are there some uh, shades in between there as well? Mm -hmm. I think it's very close to um, what we would use as, as labels to describe penetration tests or similar security assessments. Um, I'm not really sure if it's like exactly the same, but uh, if you, for example, talk about a black box test and we talk about a, text, a test where we don't have much information compared to anyone out there on the internet. So um, we basically slip into a specific role and after slipping into this role, the test becomes a black box test. And the role here would be like the uninformed attacker. Or we could do a white box test where we don't slip into the role of the uninformed attacker, but rather assume the role of someone who has all the insights, has access to the sources, to the configuration files, potentially SSH on the server, and so on and so on. So we become more of an auditor, um, still with a main interest of doing bad stuff or finding the spots where bad stuff can be done, um, but simply with a different pair of goggles on and with a different level of visibility and insight that we have. So we can get more stuff done. But we might also miss things that are only visible from the outside. So it depends a little bit on what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it. And Andrew, the um, the, the role of both of those in in your program. Um, so yeah, so um, we 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 do both, and and both are important in different ways. So um, we 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 commission. Um, black box pen tests um and and that's really from my point of view and and you know we might disagree about that but from my point of view um it's it's a it's a much more common thing it's a much more well-known thing you know um 
there there are many organizations that can do it and and very often a lot of the a lot of the things they're doing you know they're they're running as, as a lot of standardized tools um and it tends to be <clears throat> without sounding controversial there's you know it's a much it's a lower skilled exercise because there's a lot of tooling out there for, for example for web applications a lot of the um you know a lot of the issues and the things you're testing for are already known and um you know things like cross-site scripting etc cetera, etc cetera, that are well-known issues that have been solved so you're looking for coding errors configuration errors but uh, um and and we do black bot tests for our um our basically our web apps um but due to the nature of what we do there's also there's also client software um, and we don't do black bot tests of that so the reason we wanted to do a white box test is um i felt and i might have been wrong that in order for the test to be really valid to to help us improve our software and to be beneficial to us not just a rubber stamp on a piece of paper that a customer can see mm -hmm. i really wanted an external organization that had people familiar with you know the the, the tech stack we were using to actually go through our my, my view was we need to go through our code with a fine tooth comb because with the best will in the world doesn't matter how good your developers are there will be things that they miss right so sometimes another pair of eyes another perspective on looking at the code is useful so that's a very long way of saying we do both and and i think they're both quite different yeah absolutely and i think yeah i mean we could probably spend the, the entire conversation debating on her and probably not even debating, just discussing where the value of one is and where it stops and the other one picks up and where it overlaps. But let, let's stay focused on uh, the, the white box. So you know some information. Um, you mentioned tech stack, Andrew, and I want to maybe start here in terms of scoping, right? So uh, with as much details you are comfortable sharing, <laughs> yeah. what, what does a tech stack look like? Where... I, I presume he uses some cloud. Do you have some shared responsibility agreement with the cloud provider? So maybe kind of walk through the stack of an application, let's say, maybe not everything you're looking at, but something you, you want to share. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the first thing to say is if there's a technology out there, we're probably using it somewhere in our tech stack. And um, I think Mario probably did a bit of a gulp when he saw when he got a list of the technologies we were using. Um, but I think, like most complex applications, there are that you know it's very hard to to limit the tech stack because then you know you have to develop. The reality is you have to develop in in the tech stack that A meets the solution and B can be done in a timely fashion with the resources you have. Um, so you know the, ultimately the the core of our application is, is c plus plus right um is uh, there are clients there are servers and things like that that are installed onto client endpoints so that automatically added a level of complexity to an audit because we needed we needed a team who could not just do more mainstream technologies maybe like you know javascript and and python and, and things like that but actually um in our case, C++ and Go were the were two of the big ones that um, we we really needed to engage in as a specialist organization that that could cover those. And and quickly before you jump in, Mario, with the the C++ um, clearly not not a, a fresh off the shelf language here, right? <laughs> so the the decision there to use that um, legacy applications continuing to build on things or just the power and, and capabilities at the endpoint that you need to do with that language? Um, I think it's a combination of all of them. I think, you know, the company I work for has been in business for 20 years and it, it, it's evolved over 20 years. Um, and there's never been a compelling reason to move away from C++, to be honest. Um, there's nothing wrong with C++. It's, it's one of the things that, you know, we really need performance and we really need um, C++ is, you know, if we had an interpreted language, it arguably might not be as fast. Performance is important to us, as is the size of the, the size of the client, the, the, the client software. 
um, you know, and we have to use Microsoft Teams every day in work for doing business. And if you look at Electron apps, yeah, they might be really nice and easy and cross-platform, but they're massive and probably riddled with a whole lot of security issues that are outside of the code that you're writing. Um, so with C++, I mean, we're a bit of an extreme example in that we've written everything from scratch. Um, because 20 years ago, the tooling, a lot of the tools weren't there, a lot of the libraries weren't there. So, um, and that's why the white box audit, I think, was quite a big exercise because, you know, we have a protocol. We have, we're not just uh, an off-the-shelf solution, a, a kind of pick, pick up the bits and bolt them together. It is a solution that's been developed from scratch with a protocol and, and things like that. So, um, while C++ is possibly legacy, and, and if we were doing it now, we might use something else. Um, there is no compelling reason to move away from it. And we've got 20 years of learning how to write C++, to be honest, as an organization. Yeah, a lot of tribal knowledge. Mario, what, um, so tell, tell me about the gulp moment. <laughs> well, I, that, that was me saying that. Mario may disagree. I know. <laughs> I think there wasn't that big of a, of a gulp moment, um, but what could be interpreted as one is when you learn about like how many lines of code are there. Because like if you talk about scoping of a pen test or an audit, you initially need to know what's there. So you ask like two questions. The first question that you ask is what's there from a high-level perspective, and then you get answers like two mobile apps and one client and one web application and one API, something like this, just like really roughly described. And then the second question is like, okay, so for each of those, um, what's there in terms of code? What's it written? What kind of frameworks? How many lines of code? How many API endpoints? How many user roles? Basically everything that gives you some insights about the metrics of the scope objects. And uh, when we learned about the number of lines of code in this particular example, we were like, oh, that's a lot. But that was also expected <laughs> because it's a lot of software and uh, there's a lot of scope items that have been placed into scope. So needless to say, we were, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I can talk about this, but somewhere in the seven digit numbers, if I remember correctly with the length of code. And uh, that is, of course, a lot. But just to, just to pick up on that, um, mm -hmm. I specifically didn't want just one part of our solution tested from uh, my perspective was there could be vulnerabilities anywhere. We hear all the time about, you know, people, at attackers pivoting from one vulnerability to another vulnerability. Um, so I regarded for the, for the, for the white box audit, pen test, whatever we want to call it, it really needed to involve our entire stack. And that includes all the mobiles app, you know, the, 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 the cross-platform applications, the web app, the back end, um, because if we hadn't done that, we, I would be worried that we we didn't have a 360 view of everything that was going on, and it would kind of hobble Mario's ability to do his job by excluding certain things. And if I were if I I'm 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 a bit paranoid, and I'd be thinking if I were Mario, I'd be thinking, what are they hiding here? <laughs> Yeah, and maybe Mario, as you as you uh, if you don't mind drilling deeper into this, I mean, yes, there are elements or components, right? You have a web app, desktop app, uh, mobile app, backend service, data stores, networking, cloud service. I don't know, whatever all the things are. Um, they in individually work a certain way, but connected, they also allow the system to work a certain way, perhaps differently than they might uh, on their own. And so Mario, how, how did you go about breaking down and analyzing the subcomponents of the subcomponents to, under, mm -hmm. to understand? Because I mean, a, a mobile app might work differently than a desktop app, right? Mm -hmm. And may, may call different APIs, may call them differently, may pass different parameters, may blah, 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 blah. How do, how do you get to that point where you're looking at the right elements in the right way? Mm -hmm. That is actually not that complicated in most situations because um, the different kinds of products that, that a company is offering that are supposed to be looked at already give you like an orientation how your work package should look like. And then the technical details about each of the components tells you exactly who from your team should be looking at the whole thing. And then what you need to do internally is to find out which ones of those components are actually security critical and which ones are not that security critical. I would go as far and say that the core libraries um, that a software might be using or the API that a software might be exposing 
is critical because all the good stuff happens there. And I might also argue that potentially the web application, if it's just consisting of like a UI or something that is like a single page web application, application running in your browser is important, but not that super important because you can't get direct access to the data. You can maybe find a cross-site scripting or something like this, but then you remain most of the time in the client. And then last but not least, you look at the mobile apps and like, okay, so they're installed on someone's device. Those are important. They have their own threat model, but they're in no way as important in most situations as, for example, API core libs or pretty much everything that is there written in C++ because entirely different threat model, entirely different risk that is behind it. And then you already kind of start seeing a map shaping up and knowing like this is one component that talks to the other component. So those people assigned to this component need to talk to the other people assigned to that component. And then at some point becomes reality and it gets specific and does something concrete falls out and then you have a plan. Usually it depends on the technology. It depends a little bit on the customer. It depends a little bit on the uh, domain specific parts, but at the end of the day, you usually find answers to those questions quite quickly and you know exactly, okay, this is one element, this is one compound of things, let's audit this with less level of prior and the other ones with another level of prior and so on. So you, know, you want to add something there, Andrew? I, I was I was just going to say in our case, um, the, the, the bit that I think we were almost most interested in was the security of the protocol that we use that underpins our application and actually the, most of that code is shared between the the desktops apps and the mobile apps so i think that made it achievable because it they 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 they've, it's a different front end kind of wrapper around fundamentally the same protocol and and a lot of the libraries are shared yeah because and i'm going to go out on a limb here and and uh, assess that Andrew has kind of a good view <laughs> of what what the environment looks like. Um, and Mar, I don't know if that's typically the case uh, where somebody can say, this is what my infrastructure looks like. This is what the ecosystem components looks like. Tell me where, tell me where I need to, to uh, invest some, some additional controls or policies or whatever it might be versus a company that says, we just, and, because Andrew's been building this stuff for 20 years, right? Or at least a company has. Versus a new startup that basically builds apps using 90% shared shared libraries, a lot of them open source, and and, and then they write 10% of the code themselves um, and have very little view, perhaps, of what's what. So any thoughts on that uh, dichotomy? Does it change things much? I mean, the word that we're after is probably inventory. So if you're working for a company, you need to know your inventory if you're in the, the, the respective role. Um, if you do not know your inventory, then you cannot really determine what needs to be tested. You cannot really determine where the risks are, where threat actors might actually become active. So this is like one of the key bits. You need to know what you have and you need to know what you're sitting on to be able to make like a conscious decision about what should be looked at in the next audit test, vulnerability assessment, or whatever you're going to be running, even if it's just bug bounty or something like this. You need to know what is where and uh, what is the risk and can people even look at it without breaking stuff? Because it could also be that you have something in your stack that once it is being pen tested and receives more requests than usual, that it just collapses and then something critical might collapse. We've had that in the past, it can happen. Um, but I doubt that it's possible to do security productively without having a clear idea about your inventory. I think I think Sean, you picked up on one of my little bugbears, and you know some of your listeners might fundamentally disagree with this. But a lot of the time, particularly startups, we've all seen the developers who copy and paste code from Stack Overflow, or they or they use they use stuff from cloud providers that maybe they don't fully understand. And as soon as you start doing that, then you raise the you raise the risk, right? Because you don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know you don't necessarily know how the code's working. And if we think about, you know, things like some of the horror stories around NPM recently where developers are just, you know, pulling packages and they don't necessarily know what they're doing, how they're working, um, there could be vulnerabilities in them. Um, so I think I'm in a nice position in that because we've developed, because we've been around for a while and we've we've written everything ourselves and we're not a startup, I think we're in a luxurious position of probably understanding more about our code base than... Um, than a startup that is under massive, and I think they, 
you know, dev teams, you know, I'm not a developer, I'm an IT guy, but dev teams are under massive pressure to ship quickly. And we all know that corners get cut and that sometimes security is not necessarily front and center um, because there's this drive to ship from, from investors, from the market, wherever it's coming from. And I personally think that it's the, the rise in the number of data breaches, the number of security vulnerabilities, I think there is a correlation with the number of, um, you know, startups that are working, you know, writing stuff really fast, getting it out there. They might be doing some really cool stuff, but is it secure? I don't think even they, even they would claim it was. I, I do agree. I mean, this is like <laughs> to be to be one of the first who actually offers a specific kind of software, a specific kind of service, because you have more time than others. If now someone came and said, like, well, we're also going to get a foot in the door with like remote uh, desktop, remote connection services. How are we going to be able to catch up as quickly as possible with real VNC? Well, we use as many of the things that are already out there as possible and glue them together and hope that it flies. Um, and then the consequences, of course, that uh, you're gonna, you're definitely gonna have some level of bugs. You're gonna have some level of security problems because you do not know exactly how each of the components that you glue together works and what the pitfalls are. And then one of the components might have an enhanced set of features that you never heard of, or you didn't read the docs properly. And then it turns out that it can do things that you never anticipated and the whole thing falls apart because something that's user controlled goes into an eval or something like this. We've seen that not in the in the remote uh, connection uh, business, needless to say, but in other businesses where this tends to happen. There is some first mover, then another company wants to kind of catch up and then more want to catch up because it's good money. And then software comes out that, yeah, it works, but that's pretty much all. So, yeah. And I, forget, I, I, uh, I was uh, going to say sure. quickly, uh, Andrea, and I want to hear what you say, but just we can't forget that security is at least a three-legged triad, right? confidentiality, integrity, and availability. We always focus on confidentiality and, and has it been compromised where a service can be used to do something else where availability is key as well as integrity, right? We want to know that the apps uh, and its data is uh, has integrity too. Sorry, Andrew, go ahead. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, and I think this problem is actually, if you think about things like OpenSSL that pretty much every software uses out there, um, there are, I don't know how many lines of code there are in OpenSSL, but there are regularly things that come up that some really old feature that nobody uses anymore is still in the code and suddenly gets exploited. So understanding that inventory is super important and, and you know, um, just be aware, I guess, if you're writing software and you are, and you have TLS libraries that are that are fundamental to your solution, um, it's very easy as a developer to start using one. It's not necessarily easy to make it work securely, even though it's TLS. It doesn't necessarily mean it's secure. So, Mario, where where does the white box? Uh, the, the understanding of what's inside really come into play here. I've, I've heard uh, Andrew speak to the protocol. I presume it's a standard protocol that, that the app's been built around. I uh, just mentioned SSL, OpenSSL, um, standard way to uh, securely communicate, right? Um, so those are perhaps two inside elements that external people might know enough about to then compromise from the outside or from the inside if they, they gain access inside somehow. So where does the, the white box stuff come in where it really drives uh, yeah, better value, I guess, in, in the assessment, the audit, than, uh, than a black box mm. test? Work? I think the key word here is complexities. So if you take a piece of software and that software is just like pretty much like any other software of the same kind out there, like a simple web application with a bunch of forms, then you might do a white box pen test or you might do a gray box pen test or a black box pen test. But in the end, the results are not going to differ that much because that thing is simple. That means even without lots of insight, you can get a good grasp of it and you can understand it and you can make the right decisions and make the right estimations as a tester and eventually reach something that you could label as completeness in terms of coverage. Of course, you're never going to be fully done with your coverage, but you can get close. 
But as soon as you have a certain level of complexity, um, you have to make too many assumptions about uh, what is there, what might be there, how it works, how it works internally, what kind of layers are there. So at some point, white box or crystal box is the only way to actually go because you need that insight and you need to kind of have that visibility over certain complexities on the stack because otherwise all you can do is guess. But the amounts of guesses that you have to do, and I mean, to be quite frank, black box testing is usually guessing. The amounts of guesses that you need to do with the Larry raising level of complexity grows exponentially. So at some point, you just like can't guess enough anymore to reach a level of coverage that is sufficient. I think a, a good, just a, a kind of practical example springs to mind. Um, with, with our software, for example, we delegate authentication to the operating system. An outside attacker is not going to see how that works, how those system calls are done. You know, are they handled properly? Are failures handled properly? You know, things like that, that I think only from seeing the code, are you actually going to know how that process is working? So, no. so that, that leads me to two things. And uh, this may, this may be what we talk about for the rest of this. The first part is you do the audit you get a ton of stuff back. How do you absorb that? Um, you hear un umpteen stories of, we got this pen test, nice PDF, gets put on the shelf and we never look at it again. So how do you, how do you in ingest what you find? But then also perhaps, how do you use that and your learning to build the next iteration, not just fixing the bugs that perhaps were found or vulnerabilities that were found, but perhaps designing in the way you just described, leveraging the OS, which right, does have some separation there, which makes it more difficult to understand, therefore uh, difficult to compromise. How do you do those two things, Andrew? So the way the way we worked with Cure 53, um, which I, is probably normal for Cure 53, uh, but it worked very well for us, is effectively, um, Mario's mentioned work streams. So the... The the, the 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 audit was divided into four pieces of work that mapped onto our four development teams. So so we had the right people available, and effectively as they were finding things, um, they we 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 were using you know a, a system like Teams or Slack or whatever an organization uses. But we were Cure fifty three were ask were, had the ability to ask questions to our developers. Hey, why have you done things this way? You know, can you clarify what this is doing? Um, and then anything that was found which was concerning to Cure 53, um, basically we use we use Jira like most organizations. So Jiras were created to fix those things. Um, and for, I don't, I don't think any, it wouldn't be realistic for any audit of the size of what Cure 53 did for us to find nothing. They did find some things, thankfully no, no criticals. Um, but effectively, as issues were, as Cure 53 were finding things, uh, the dev teams were raising Jira's, and um, actually, the second phase was Cure 53 reviewing the PRs, reviewing the pull requests, and and confirming with our dev team that that, from their point of view, does fix it. And that process worked worked really well. And actually, um, we <coughs> there were some thirty odd issues that that were fixed in this process. Um, and all of them were kind of validated by Cure 53. So the, the, the external party that found the issues then validated the fixes and that worked really well for us. So they certainly weren't left on the shelf and, and withered. And, and as I said, we didn't do it as a, as a rubber, rubber stamping exercise for customers to say, Hey, look, we've done this thing. Aren't we great? It was to, we, genuinely had the desire to make our product better and more secure. Which is also probably something that we can um, use in the discussion around uh, black box versus white box, because with white box engagements, you usually have like way more communication with the client. You have like the possibility to verify fixes based on diffs and PRs. You have communication during the test. You can ask anything. They can ask you anything. Um, because you're not the external attacker. You're like someone sitting with them, next to them, et cetera, et cetera. And that also kind of gives you more depth, especially when the complexity levels are high. So, yeah, before we go to the, the, the next round of development cycle, um, how, 
how did this uh, fit into the broader picture of your security program, Andrew? And how how did you communicate uh, what you did, how it was completed, the results of that to those that matter, and who who are those that matter? <laughs> Uh, well, I guess ultimately those who matter are um, A, our investors, and B, our customers. Um, um, so how did we communicate it? We internally, we circulated the Cure 53 full report to everyone. Um, and I was particularly interested in improvements that Cure 53 could identify in our software development process. So um, some of what Cure53's report contained was some recommendations on, hey, you might want to consider doing X, Y, Z. Uh, and then that was taken by our engineering team, by our CTO and, and, and action. So a good example, for example, Cure53 said, hey, you might want to consider doing fuzzing. And, and here's why. Um, and, that, and that went into our kind of dev pipeline. Um, and then for customers, um, you know, I really believe in transparency around security because ultimately um, anything less than transparency is a little bit smoke and mirrors. Um, we couldn't publish the full 50, Cure 53 report simply because it contained quite a lot of proprietary code extracts that we didn't necessarily want out in the public. But we published a summary report that was a warts and all report. You know, it wasn't perfect and we weren't looking for it to be perfect we wanted to we wanted to give customers a level of confidence that there are no skeletons in the closet and also to help us as i said improve our software and, and mario from from your perspective uh stepping out a bit um i, th I think my my perspective is pen tests are always give me all the negative stuff that i need to go address um, do you find generally and or specifically with, with Andrew's program um, some insights into where their uh, development process has been working well for them, uh, where you don't you didn't normally or didn't find things you would normally find at other organizations that you were able to communicate back to Andrew to say, keep doing this because that is helping you uh, reduce exposure and reduce risk? Mm. That's a bit hard to answer without uh, sharing any internal uh, details. Um, but it's not unheard of that after a penetration test in general, um, you can say a lot of negative things. And we need to say those things. like Because if we don't, then someone else will and uh, they don't write a report at least. Um, but there's oftentimes also good things that you can report. You can, for example, report good things such as fantastic communication during the penetration test. And you can also report good things such as every question that the team asked was like answered within minutes or like half an hour or an hour. Um, you can, for example, also make a good attestation about uh, the people in the right roles, having the right insights and really knowing what they do. And you can also, for example, positively attestate or attest that there is like a fantastic security climate or fantastic security culture, or that certain things that you usually find in different but comparable platforms are just simply not present in this particular example. If we, let's say, run into a situation where we look at a complex website and we just like don't find any cross-site scripting, then this is weird because we always find cross-site scripting, at least in most of the cases. And then we say something about this because then it's clear that this topic is really under control. And we can say, well, if you folks are going to plan for a training or something like this, skip the XSS model because you got this under control. It's actually looking good. I mean, we don't know, of course, whether this is really the case because we cannot see the entire company, only like snippets of it or like parts of the products that we look at. But still, you know where I'm coming from. It is oftentimes visible that certain vulnerability patterns or certain back classes don't exist. And then you can say a nice word about this actually working. Whatever concept is there, it's working well and you don't have this particular problem. And I believe that there was a bunch of issues that we actually flagged as very positive with real PNC as well. And in the final conclusion of the 
of the internal report also positively noted as well. This is fantastic. There wasn't any crits. This is a good thing. There was a bunch of high, but not too many. Well, given the size of the code base, that's probably quite unusual. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty impressive indeed. We have found uh, similar examples with similar networking and uh, desktop software running with like six, seven, 10, 12 crits. And that's a disaster. And that was not the case here. So that is also something that wants for a positive remark. So Andrew, talk to me about the, the culture there. Because uh, that, that doesn't happen uh, accidentally, right? Yeah. This, this um, is something that you've, you've done. So at the risk of, I don't know if you know the background of the company, but the company was founded back in 2002 by the original developers of VNC who worked in the AT&T Research Lab in Cambridge. So they were academics, you know, they were computer scientists. Um, AT&T decided to close that research lab and there were some some organizations um that i probably can name because i don't i think it's pretty public there were some organizations like intel who said to who said to the founders hey we really see a future in this technology we kind of don't want this technology to die um so they effectively gave some they gave some seed money to start this company to, to continue development of this thing that they developed under the AT&T umbrella. Um, originally, it was open sourced. Um, and effectively, since 2002, the company has been continuing developing the commercial versions of this thing that was originally open sourced. So I think in terms of culture, it's a very, it's a very kind of engineering led culture from the very earliest days. Um, and I, I, I think yeah, I think security is everybody knows and take everybody and it's not marketing speak to say that as an organization, we know we live or die by the security of our product because in remote access, if customers get compromised and we're culpable, it's existential for us, right? If our product has fundamental weaknesses. So we all, you know, from the, the CEO down security is absolutely something that we will not compromise on if if we are on you know like all commercial organizations we're under pressure to release more to do more numbers to do you know sell, sell more software etc cetera, etc cetera. but there are some red lines and compromising on security is absolutely one of those red lines and and we all understand that and and that's very much central to the culture and we see that as we see it as an in, we we like to think that we we invest in our product by investing in the security of it. So in a lot of organisations, security is seen as a drag factor. It's something you have to do with a kind of sad look on your face. Uh, we've written this amazing web app. Now we need to make sure it's secure. But for us, it's security is absolutely essential, and it's at the core of what we do. Actually, I, I love that, and I'm. I mean, there it's, it's the exception to the rule. I think where people understand the importance and then people believe probably even less that, that believe and are passionate about uh, proving or demonstrating that it is important. And then, the, then there's a reality of doing it. And I want to close with this and I'll, I'll give you a final word as well, Mara, before we, before we wrap it, Andrew, maybe one more slice on the culture, because this is an important piece. It, you've, you've built a team that not only believes, but actually does it. So are there, are there ways you run your meetings? Are there tools you use? Are there um, award rewards or how, how do you kind of keep it going beyond just, we believe in security? Hmm. That's a really good question and a really hard question, I guess. Um, so, so in our, in our SDLC, so we try to follow the Microsoft SDLC. So, you know, we're trying to do that whole shift left thing of bringing in security very, very early in the earliest conceptions of new features and functionality. Um, so, so there's that side of it. So the developers, and they never get a chance to write stuff that's insecure because we have security people saying, hey, where's your threat modeling? You know, you haven't done that as part of like non-functional requirements, for example, for a new feature um that's that's the kind of the stick approach of hey we're not you know what what's that you know we, you can't release that have you thought about xyz from our um from our security 
from our security team who um we we have the guy that that kind of heads up that function as actually interestingly picking up on something you said earlier about qa he joined us as a software tester and he found he was interested in security so then navigated and was more interested in specifically security stuff but he has the background of of like qa testing of automated testing of what good tests look like what challenges developers and testers are under so he can talk their language and i think one of the where a lot of organizations fail is where security is imposed by where it's not a conversation where it's just imposed and i think the fact that yes it helps that we're a fairly small company but where devs and security it's it's a mutually collaborative thing rather than a just a brick wall that you can't talk to and i think that's super important and i think that's a big part of i think that's really important that security can be a conversation and rather than like cybersecurity coming in with a big hammer and hitting someone over the head they can talk to the devs and explain to them and and bring them up to speed with why maybe that isn't their best approach and and that seems to work well for us i think um in large you know i've I, I used to work in big companies and security was a very removed function from development and it tended to and i think this is where the whole shift left thing comes from security tended to be the final check before stuff released um and that clearly causes antagonism because the developers have spent a lot of time and a lot of blood, sweat and tears developing something only for it to be kicked back at them because there are security issues with it. Um, and I think the more you can bring the, the security teams and, and the security experts in integrate that into the development process, I think that that's hugely beneficial. Yeah, I love it. And, and Mario, we're, we're speaking to those security teams here so um any advice for them on how best to approach a white box security test and i, I presume it's going to be driven by communications <laughs> to start but what what else could you say to help them really prepare for a program that succeeds mm. I think most of the most of the good ideas and, and thoughts about this that actually work in practice were already mentioned by Andrew. Um, communication is key, and you can never have a situation where the security people become sheriffs and just like randomly make decisions, but do not shed any form of transparency to developers or other people why those decisions were made. So there needs to be an understanding. There needs to be an understanding from the end of the security team to the development team to understand what their needs are and what their concerns are, and the other way around as well. And that is eventually what you need for, for a good culture. We can always, as pen testers, always at least try to kind of chime in uh, and not work against that. And that is why we, for example, try to be as close as possible to the customer during it has always um, recommend to do at least bright gray box, if not white box, because we don't want to be those sheriffs. We don't want to be like the external cavalry that comes riding and shoots everything into bits and pieces and then leaves again and doesn't leave you anything in behind that you can actually work to kind of repair your stuff. That doesn't make any sense. You can do this. You can follow this approach, but it doesn't really help. Um, and uh, what I noticed over the past years as a pretty good indicator to detect whether you have a good security culture in your, in, in your company already or whether there's still like room for improvement is not to look at the tests and the test results and all those things, not to look at the crits and at the bugs that you found, but to look at the fixes. Because from the fixes, you can read so much. You can read from the fixes via the timeliness as to how focused the team is on working on those. You can also read from the fixes how good they are, how spot on they are, if they actually address the issue or if they fix an entirely different problem or fix the problem just like halfway. And uh, you can always also learn how those fixes are being created, how they're being presented. In some situations, a client comes at us and says, like, well, all the fixes are in. The application is now fixed. Have another look. And it's like, mm, <laughs> we can do that, but it's not great. Um, it gives us the possibility to tell you in a blurry and vague way, we guess it's all good, but we don't really know. So, yep, that wasn't really worth anything. Or they could say, look, um, here is a zip file. And in that zip file, you have diffs. And the diff 
file name is actually numbered after the ID of the bug. So you know exactly what issue that div is addressing. And there's only that code in there that is necessary for the bug to be fixed. So happy review time, you're gonna be done in half an hour. And we're like, oh, wow, that is fantastic. That is exactly how it should be. So as I said, I do not really know what and how many things you need to do to kind of build up a good security culture. Uh, I know a couple, but not all of them, but I do know how to actually measure this and that is pretty much by looking at the fixes and understanding how well they became and how fast they came in, how accurate they are, how they're presented. And then last but not least, also looking at the fixed application after all and checking, did all the same bugs come back or did they actually have a learning effect and eliminated that particular bug pattern? And you will never find XSS in this application because they understood it in full, communicated it well, and now it's gone. Super cool. That's brilliant, Mara. I really appreciate that. I, I presume a lot of our listeners uh, can resonate with that as well. Uh, it's always difficult measuring success in this uh, in this world of security. So thanks, uh, thanks for sharing that. And Andrew, thanks for sharing your uh, your program with us, uh, giving us some insights into why and how and and the results that you have. And I think for me, the big takeaway is the not only care you believe and you respond with that uh, with that belief as well seems uh, based on this conversation I, I, so. I think I think security is an investment yeah. I, and, and I think very often it's seen as a cost but it really we need to change it around to it being an investment in the same way as IT often seen as a blocker, security is often seen as a blocker. And there are possibly good reasons why they're doing things, but it's about how you communicate why you're doing this stuff. Um, so that you're not seen as Mario said, as the sheriff coming in, shooting everything and then riding off into the sunset. That's right. Bang, bang, bang. Nice one. Well, thank you both again. Appreciate the conversation and thanks everybody for listening to this episode. We'll, uh, we'll include notes, of course, uh, for you to connect with Mario and Andrew. And I believe there was a, a blog post that kind of highlights uh, some of this stuff, which was the, uh, the catalyst for this conversation. So we'll share that as well in the notes. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for, for more conversations here as we continue to redefine cybersecurity. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.